In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our commonwealth is in heaven, from whence we eagerly await a Savior. There is one thing we Americans can now agree on as far as our elections. Voting starts very early, and counting runs very late. To be sure, unsettled elections are not an entirely new thing in the history of our young nation. But the whole business certainly doesn't seem to be running quite as smoothly as it did 30 years ago. We may well have to wait until January to know for sure just which flavor of liberalism will claim to represent our tastes for the next two years. Some of us begin to fear whether we will soon reach the point of many third world republics, where each election cycle brings with it the threat of all-out civil war. Others, such as this amateur history buff, see our National Congress slouching year by year into the old worn seat of the ancient Roman Senate, which continued to convene and hold votes for a full 300 years after it had ceased to exercise any real power. Democratic republics are not new in the human experience. They are born, they decay, and they die. We love our land, and we pray for the conversion of our people. But in a world utterly stained by original sin, full of enemies of the cross of Christ, we can scarcely expect our system of government, whatever its merits, to last forever. And if its demise helps to bring an end once for all to the whole idea of the atheistic modern state, so much the better. On the Feast of Christ the King, I reminded you that there is a society here on earth endowed with a divine constitution, which is guaranteed to last until the end of time. The one holy Catholic and apostolic church founded by Jesus Christ. Since that divine constitution is so different from that of the United States or other nations, should we conclude that they have almost nothing to do with each other? That what goes on inside the church has nothing to do with world politics? And that elections and other world events need not concern the church? Far from it. As Catholics, redeemed souls, entrusted with the fullness of truth, we must know with divine faith that what goes on in the world depends more than any other factor on the words and actions of the members of Christ's mystical body. We can affirm without hesitation that our nation and the entire world is the way it is today mainly because of how Catholics, both priests and people, hierarchy and laity, have or have not been faithful to the unchangeable teachings of Christ, which he handed down to his church. We will never have a perfect country here on earth. St. Paul today employs the technical Greek term for commonwealth precisely in order to emphasize that we have no lasting citizenship here below. But as we await the return of our Savior, who will make all things new, we are not to content ourselves with the world as it is. 
To do so, says the Apostle, would mark us as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is perdition, whose God is the belly, whose glory is in their shame, who savor earthly things. This is the great challenge put to us, Christians, by the inspired words of the Apostle to the nations. To be all things to all men, that we may gain all for Christ, and yet never to conform ourselves to this world. We cannot fix a precise date for the birth of the modern era, but it is useful to trace its development from the time when our civilization reached its peak, the 13th century. That was a century full of sinful men like any other, but it was a society built upon the principle that Christ is king in all spheres of human existence, religious, political, and intellectual. But the patient Lord allows both wheat and weeds to grow on his land until harvest, and the weeds eventually overgrew the good crop of the age of faith. Earthly kings, eager to enjoy the rewards of this world, vied to win control over the true king's viceroy. And eventually, popes succumbed to the pressure. The papacy split into two and then three claimants, and the office fell into disrepute. When it was finally restored to Rome under one pope alone, the medieval world had been swept away by war, plague, and an arrogant new learning, which, while pretending to recover the wisdom of the ancients, violently rejected their Christian forebears as Gothic and barbarian. This age proudly referred to itself as the rebirth, or Renaissance, and sadly, Many members of the church hierarchy, the Pope himself, were not immune to its enticements. Throughout all these years, the teachings of the church remained as true and clear as ever. But the corrupt actions of many of its prominent members helped to fuel the Protestant revolt. This renaissance is indeed worldly and evil, the new heretics cried, but so was the scholastic age that preceded it. Man cannot serve God with his works or even with his mind, but with faith alone. The scourge of Protestantism wreaked havoc on the continent of Europe, snatching whole nations away from the fold of Christ. After this veritable Calvary for the true spouse of Christ, the Church roared in response with the holy decrees of the Council of Trent. Many regions returned to the faith, while others became more fervent than ever. A series of holy popes would reign almost without interruption for over 400 years. The faith gloriously reaffirmed at Trent would sow the illustrious sainthood of countless men and women in the centuries that followed, though the Church certainly would count them by placing them on the calendar of her holy and venerable Roman rite. But the damage of Protestantism had been done. Faith had been divorced from reason in the minds of men. And so human reason would now forge its own path apart from God. Perhaps Christian humanism was impossible after all. 
the time was ripe for a new age of reason. The men of this movement would not call their age a rebirth, for it was better than any recovery of dusky old learning from the past. Founded on the experiences of men, this age would gleefully style itself the Enlightenment. The experimental sciences would begin to reign supreme as the only true knowledge, while theology was held at best on a par with poetry, or at worst, as worthy of the most savage mockery. The modern state, whether governed by kings, parliaments, or popular suffrage, was now to hold sway over all facets of human life. Church and state had always been meant to work together, each in its own sphere of competence, but recalling that even men of state were first and foremost members of the church. The new doctrine of separation of church and state would ensure that the state would be the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong, guaranteeing to the true religion nothing more than the privilege of behaving itself, along with other harmless religious and philosophical opinions. Holy Mother Church did not fail in her teaching mission during this time, although the hierarchy, under political pressure, sometimes made grave mistakes in governing the Church, which set the stage for the bloodshed to follow. Nevertheless, the Church's most eloquent condemnations of these new opinions did not come until after the old world had erupted in violent revolution. Call the revolutionary ideas what you will, naturalism, rationalism, liberalism, modernism, they prompted the exercise of the Church's magisterium as we know it today. From the beginning of the 19th until the middle of the 20th century, Pope after Pope employed his pen or even convened a council to aid him in vigorously condemning every erroneous opinion which was poisoning the souls of men. The modern eras advanced nonetheless, but it was made clear to all who had ears to hear what was the truth of Christ and what was the work of the deceiver. The papal encyclical, unknown to ages past, became a document published at regular intervals. Thanks in large part to these frequent interventions, by the early 20th century, there was a well-founded hope that the wisdom of the former age of faith, embodied above all in the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas, would at last recover its pride of place among all good thinking men in this hostile world. In most cases during these two centuries, the Pope and the bishops in union with them exercised the teaching of the universal and ordinary magisterium. That is, they reaffirmed the perennial teaching of the Church by expressing it in terms which applied it to the questions pressing upon men's minds in their day. Such teaching is infallible because it does no more than recall for the present age truths which are already known to be revealed by God. On far more rare occasions, the Pope or an ecumenical council in union with him exercised the solemn and extraordinary magisterium in order to define 
a particular truth, hitherto known only in general terms, as belonging to the deposit of divine revelation. Such was the case of the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the doctrine of papal infallibility. Such teaching is also infallible because the Pope who expounds it does so by clearly invoking his office of supreme teacher in order to bind all the faithful on a point of faith or morals. We arrive at the period of these last 60 years, a mere blip of time, which has witnessed the most rapid and widespread degradation of man in all recorded history, an unbridled celebration of unspeakable immorality and a near total rejection of the natural law, which now leads men to question whether human beings will even continue to exist as such. This complete moral collapse is not limited to our nation, though American culture, if we can even call it that, has driven the slide toward the abyss. Where has the church stood in all of this? You know this question is not a new one. In the face of such demoralizing confusion, some have gone further in asking, is the church still here? Is it the same church as always? Do we have a true hierarchy over us? Your preacher does not hesitate to answer all those questions in the affirmative. We still have the church founded by Jesus Christ. We still have a pope, bishops, priests, and sacraments. Well, then why are we in this mess? Is the church still teaching us? That question, my children, is not so easy to answer. To be sure, the teaching of the church has not changed and never will change. The church still teaches us through all that she has handed down to us over the past 2,000 years. When the Pope and the bishops in union with him transmit to us that unchanging truth, they are preserved from error. We must humbly listen and joyfully obey. But the Holy Ghost does not force the members of the hierarchy to teach us. And so we can ask, have those men entrusted with the divine teaching mission carried out their duty over these past 60 years? In many cases, we must answer no. From the tempestuous opening day of the Second Vatican Council to the current ravings of the Synod on Synodality, a large portion of the church hierarchy, including often the successor of St. Peter himself, has chosen to shirk the role of teacher. In an age when men's words can be transported across the globe in seconds, the men charged with handing down to an unbelieving world the words of eternal life have often made the conscious choice to set those words aside. They know that those words are in conflict with the teachings of this world. We have condemned modern errors for 200 years, they say. The time for anathemas has passed. The church now prefers the language of mercy. Mercy on what? Mercy on repentant sinners? The church has always taught that. 
And the Church has always taught that the truth must be proclaimed in charity, with all patience toward those sadly mired in the darkness of error. But how can the Church have mercy on ideas? Some of these churchmen may have been well-intentioned. Maybe they sincerely thought that by calling a truce with modern liberal culture, they could be all things to all men and gain them for Christ. Others may have had less lofty motives and beguiled by the errors of our time became enemies of the cross of Christ. Whatever the case may be, the fathers at Vatican II did something which had never been done at any of the preceding 20 ecumenical councils. They decided that no dogmas would be defined and no errors would be condemned. They established a pattern for how things would operate in the Church for the next 60 years. Traditional teaching would sometimes be repeated, and so there we would find the Church's ordinary magisterium at work. But very often, official documents would be prefaced with statements to the effect that the Church's teaching is not being reversed or called into question, but it is being set aside for the moment so that we can enter into dialogue with those who disagree with us. In some of the most recent documents that seem to come from Church authority, including the current Synod, we find the astounding flat-out declaration, this is not a document of the Church's magisterium. That is tantamount to saying, dear faithful, we are not teaching you right now. We are just talking. It is no surprise that this nuance is lost on most people, including most Catholics. To them, it is easy to conclude that the Church is changing her teaching in order to conform to the world. The truth is that some of her teachers have chosen not to teach at all. Despite their official garb, they are just chatting, as private persons would do. And in that endeavor, They have no claim to divine guidance. I tell you these things, my dear flock, not to confound you further, but so that you do not lose heart. The Church will never cease to be the guardian of the truth. What we are witnessing in our world today and in the Church herself is the further unfolding of the mystery of iniquity. Sometimes members of the hierarchy have been a scandal to the faithful because of their personal moral corruption. Today, more than ever before, they are a cause for scandal and confusion because of their failure to teach the truth. All men, even churchmen, are capable of preferring the darkness to the light. The sweet siren of humanism or naturalism can still be heard in their ear. Your commonwealth is far off in heaven. So what is the harm in making peace with the commonwealth of this world? Yes, our commonwealth is in heaven, but our cross is here on earth. We shall never set foot on the shores of our true native land unless we embrace the wood through which righteousness comes. The truth of Christ has always been a sign of contradiction a stumbling block and foolishness to this world. 
This 60-year truce with liberalism has ushered in a violent pro-Christian world. Already we find lonely but brave voices crying out in the wilderness. When the shepherds of the church affirm once again the fullness of the faith with courage and zeal, as they soon will, terrible persecution is sure to follow. It is then that we shall place all our hope in our lasting citizenship in that eternal commonwealth, from whence we eagerly await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory and honor forever. Amen.